Welcome back, dear listeners, to the Dish with Dina podcast. I'm so grateful for your ongoing patience as I continue to make my way through the library of recordings and get back to regularly scheduled episodes. Today, my guest is Catherine Ahuja, who dishes about her past experiences in dance and musical theater and gives us an anatomy and physiology lesson of pelvic floor health, her current specialty. Catherine is a physical therapist and pelvic rehabilitation certified practitioner based out of New York City. You might find some of our discussion today sensitive as we talk about eating disorders and sexual health, so please use your discretion when listening. I also want to remind everyone that the purpose of this podcast is to entertain, educate, and inform, but it is not to be taken as medical advice. Please seek prompt qualified medical care for any specific health issues and consult your physician or health practitioner before starting a new fitness regimen, herbal therapy, or other self-directed treatment. Now sit back, enjoy the conversation, and let's dish. Welcome, Catherine Ahuja, to the Dish with Dina podcast. I'm so happy to have you join me today. As I'm sure you know the format of this podcast by now, I always start off with tell me and tell us and tell the listeners, because you and I don't know each other personally, we've been Mm -hmm. introduced and we just found out we have some other people in common too, but how do we know each other or how have we crossed paths? Yeah, so I actually got to know you through my sister-in-law, Sonia, who's also been on your podcast. Yes. Um, Yeah, so she's kind of our our little uniter, Um, and Sonia has always spoke really, really highly of you and all interactions with you, Mm. Um, and she was like, you've got to meet Dina. I'm so inspired by her. She's doing all these great things. Like, let me connect you to Dina. You guys should should talk, Um, and she was exactly right. We should talk. (laughs) I love that. And this is exactly why I, I ask people this question because I want you to pump me up and make me feel really awesome. About of course. So thank of you. Course. And Sonia does not get paid to promote me. She's, she's a genuine friend and she's so sweet. And I really yeah. appreciate like you and I were saying before we, um, we went live on the recording here that we, uh, we believe that like attracts like, and that it's mm-hmm. nice to have people in our circles, whether they are indirect or direct in some way that we grow our connections and our networks and allow ourselves to continue promoting and sending our message message out there and our mission out there to uh, to get the world to hopefully be a better place, especially in times of turmoil like we're in right now. Yeah. So walk me through a little further back yeah. of some of your earliest food memories, because I do want to find out from you if whatever it was that started off in your life, in your childhood, your family dynamic, your cultural background, it then did that have any effect on how you uh, you know, grew up and how you uh, address whatever you, it is that you're pursuing in your adult life. So take us, take us back a little further first and share with us some of your earliest food memories. Sure. Uh, so both of my parents are physical therapists. Um, and then I grew up to eventually become a, a physical therapist myself. Um, so I was definitely raised in a, a in a healthcare home, if you will. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) My mom was a healthy eater before it was cool to be a healthy eater. (laughs) Um, She, and, and she really taught us to be thoughtful about the food that we were putting into our bodies. Mm. So there was really nothing that was off limits per se, but there was from a very early age, I remember 
being taught to look at and think about the sources of where my food came from and if it was actually something that we could call food. Um, I remember, oh my gosh, being a child of the 90s, wanting so badly to have a Lunchables for lunch. And, <laughs> and my, I'm standing there in the grocery store with my mom and she took the Lunchables and turned it around and said, okay, if you can read the ingredients in a turkey, you can have this. And of course, I couldn't pronounce the, you know, 15 letter words that made up the quote unquote turkey in the Lunchables. And she was like, look, this isn't actually food. You want, you know, turkey and crackers, fine, you can have that, but you're not having it wrapped up in plastic and made in a factory and, you know, covered in cartoon characters. Um, so I, I won't say that I didn't fight against that as a kid sometimes. Sometimes I just wanted to be cool and have a Lunchable. Uh, but definitely growing up and later, um, I, I really appreciated that I was, was informed about why my mom was making the decisions that she made and why, mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we were encouraged towards certain things and maybe discouraged away from others. I think I feel the same way in the sense that I, well, I didn't grow up in a, a very healthy household in the sense of my parents didn't have that background, but mm. they were very conscientious because they were immigrants mm. and they grew up like, you know, making their own food and growing their own food. So they were very much into that. Why do you need to buy it when we can, when yes. we can make it at home? I'm like, because I want to taste what American food tastes like. <laughs> so I understand that whole concept of, um, you know, just making sure you at least recognize what are in things and then yeah. kind of honoring your body as well as to what, what that is. Um, so yeah. So thank you for sharing that story exactly. to continue to, I want to hear, I want to hear more. Yeah. So, um, at my, my parents divorced when I was about five years old, um, both end, ended up remarrying. And that was kind of interesting because it set up sort of two very different food households. Um, my mom, as I said, was kind of um, aware and was doing whole grains before whole grains were cool and, mm -hmm. um, you know, was watching sodium content and, you know, was was asking us to look at the backs of packages. And my dad's house was a little more of a free-for-all, I would say. Uh, my dad ended up marrying uh, again, and my stepmother is Italian-American and was mm -hmm. is an incredible cook, um, an incredible baker as well. Uh, and so it was definitely a household where food was expressed uh, as or food was how you expressed your love, right? I think right. I, I, right. I think people who come from similar backgrounds definitely relate to that. Um, and that was so interesting to me because while my mother certainly taught me that food is nutrition, food is fuel, um, my stepmother then got to kind of show me that food can be fun and food can be pleasure mm -hmm. and food can be just because you want it. Um, so I, I, I got kind of a, a wide exposure to sort of food for thought, I guess, if you will. Um, yes. Interestingly enough, my, where, where my mother was sort of, uh, you know, the, the healthier eater, if you were, she was never on a diet. Um, she was never talking about her weight or she was never talking about health choices as related to body size or body image. Mm -hmm. It was much more about how do you adequately fuel the things that you want to do. 
Whereas my stepmother, I remember from a very early age was almost always on a diet. Um, mm -hmm. So while food was her way of expressing her love, there was also this very clear relationship uh, where, where, where food was a battle for her too. Um, right. So from a very young age, I kind of think I kind of saw a lot of the different dynamics around um, the way that we relate to food, both, both positive and negative. Right. I was going to say that too. It's, it's not necessarily a judgmental mm -hmm. factor. It's just like, oh, what an interesting way that this person perceives their relationship with food in that way. And then I'm also seeing this other side and then you yourself could make the choices of, let me uh, sample this thing. Let me experiment with this thing. Let me see how this works. And then also maybe depending on your stepmom's, um, you know, whatever she was going through at the time with the diets and whatever, you know, she was, she was engaging in that sense too, that you could also see the results of that, whether they were good or bad, like, Oh, that seems to be something that's working for her and making her feel really in control of her life, or this is taking over her life and feeling really restrictive. So, I think a lot of us, you know, especially young women, young girls at the time, we do have a lot of stories like that. Either we were told you know, stop eating something or you're getting too skinny or you're putting on too much weight. So it's really interesting that in one family hub, you actually got both sides of that at one time to kind of see, uh, you know, see both of those sides. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, I always say it's kind of ironic that my, my dad ended up with such two polar opposite women. It's, it's very interesting <laughs> about many things, not just about food. Um, right. But, but yeah, I, I definitely have been exposed to varying extremes, I think, of femininity. Um, and because I think, you know, it, it's maybe a little bit more common that we associate the people who feed us with the, the women in your life, or at least that has been in, in my home. Um, and, right. and kind of looking back at it, that was also two very different expressions of what it is to be a woman. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I, I got a pretty full gamut of that expression, if you will. Um, exactly. <laughs> very well-rounded, yeah, very well-rounded. Yeah. And so for me, I, I grew up as a dancer um, from age three. I fell in love with ballet in particular. Um, so as, as a little kid, food was I don't, like, there was no conflict to me about food because I was kind of like a bottomless tank when you're dancing three, four hours a day. That's, that's what you can be. So um, I don't know, just, I, I, I felt like I could kind of incorporate both what my mother was educating me mm -hmm. on of, okay, you have to make sure you're properly fueling. If you're dancing all day long, make sure you have a glass of milk for dinner, which oh, I don't know, looking back at now, I don't <laughs> love. <laughs> um, but also what my stepmother educated me on of like, look, this can be pleasurable and this can be fun and this can be a treat or, um, or a way that you kind of express your love for somebody. So I, I, I definitely am appreciative for, for both points of view and a way that they, you know, educated me and, and, and moved me into to who I am and my relationship with food today. Right. And so can you tell us too, then in going in your, I guess your mm -hmm. older years, as you're going into um, dance or whatever other things that you were working towards, because now you, obviously you're in yoga too, how did any of those factors fit into shifting what your thoughts were 
once you started maybe um, interacting with other people outside of your home and, you know, in that environment of like, oh, the dance studio or in my work environment, tell us a little bit about maybe how positive or negative anything's shifted in that way or if it did or didn't. Sure. Um, it is a all too common cliche to associate dancers with disordered eating or using food to, to control mm-hmm. their bodies. Um, I am five foot 10. So, and I was tall always. Um, so as a dancer, I was always the largest dancer in the room, even though I was a quote unquote mm. thin person. Um, just by the fact that I was five foot 10, my body was going to be at different proportions than the five foot two girl standing next to me. Right. And that didn't really, that wasn't something that I was ever really conscious of or thought very much about until I started to think about dance as something that was going to be a career for me. So maybe around 17, 18, as I'm getting ready to go to college, um, as I got ready to go to college, I was auditioning for half of my college uh, programs to be in the dance department and half of them to be in the theater department because what I really wanted to do was Mm -hmm. musical theater. And I thought, okay, if I get in the dance department, I'll take acting lessons on the side. And if I get in the theater department, I'll be able to take dance classes on the side and I'll kind of whittle myself into the, the, the musical theater performer that I want to be. Several of the dance programs that I was applying to talked about what they called graduation weight, which was a physical requirement that at the time of graduation, in order to receive your diploma, there was a particular weight that you needed to meet. And this was, and and this was picked individually. Um, I would never have to be at the weight of the person who was five foot two, but they were telling us, look, the reason why we're doing this is because you're going to get hired for a job and they're going to make you a costume and they're going to make you one costume and you better fit in that costume for as long as you're in that job. And so that's what they were kind of ingrating is there. You you need to have some consistency in how your body shows up. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were also sort of saying, look, in order to be employable as a dancer, there's a particular body that you should have. And we're going to make sure the graduates of our program have that body so that we can say our graduates work. Huh. So. Right. Fit, fit within this kind yeah. of mold that's expected almost like, you know, like a mannequin or a size model or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. So I didn't end up going to that school, <laughs> but, but I did end up getting accepted to NYU Tisch School of the Arts for theater. So I I was going to be a a theater major. I was a theater major. Um, And even though we were in the theater world, still body image was incredibly important. Mm. Um, I was told by teachers point blank, wow, Catherine, you're very thin. That's going to be great for film and television. That's really good. In front of the whole class, I was told that. Um, those subtle and not so subtle messages were very clear about who was going to work and who wasn't going to work. And then of course you're on your own for the first time, uh, being able to make your own food choices. So I found very quickly within my freshman year at NYU that food was something that I could use to control my appearance. And whereas I saw 
many of the women, particularly around me, struggling with having this kind of open reign to all-you-can-eat buffet at the cafeteria, um, I mm -hmm. found that I could, I, I could succeed by eating less. Um, and so within my uh, freshman year, I lost a significant amount of weight and I developed um, a restrictive eating disorder. I am extremely lucky that I had a family that was very close to me, even geographically. They saw me very often um, and also who were very close to me emotionally and who could very rapidly say, Catherine, this, is, this has gone too far now um, and we need to get you help. So I, you know, when, when I look back into my past and I've done some therapy for this, obviously, mm. um, you know, I, I, I don't look at it as the, my background that sort of developed this. It was much more about where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do and this incredibly uh, competitive environment. And even if I even if I didn't get the job, it still felt like you were winning if you were the skinniest girl in the room. Um, and there is still quite a lot of validation that comes from that. Um, so that was about, that was my, my freshman year and kind of was healing from that and recovering from that the summer between freshman and sophomore year. Um, and, and again, I, I look back, I'm very, very grateful to my family who acknowledged what was going on and, and got me the help that I needed when I, when I needed it so that I could start to find a more balanced relationship between about fueling myself more adequately. I have to say, first of all, thank you for sharing that story because it is so personal and things like this do break my heart because you started off with a healthy oh God, relationship yeah. with food. You were... Yeah. Right. It was just like, Hey, it is what it is. I eat what I eat, whatever. And then I'm writing down mm -hmm. as I often do my little notes here that it almost sounded like the requirements to build your resume, to get you the job that you want. Part of that was please develop an eating disorder at some point, which yeah. you might not even realize you were doing. Like it was just, it was part of the program there. And so kudos to you for even if you didn't necessarily recognize that was what was happening that you were open to mm. the feedback that your parents or whoever your family was stepping in and saying like we can see you from this side and we think this is an issue and then also being open to therapy because I've often said in a lot of my episodes too I'm very big in whatever you need to do to, to help you fix what might be happening behind the scenes to improve your health mental well-being whatever it is or you know invest in people that can help you achieve those things whether it is something like a therapist or a personal therapist, or a personal trainer, or a dietitian, or whatever, because it's really important for us to prioritize our health in that way. And I think um, that's that's a lovely story. And thank goodness it sounds like you came out the other end in a, in a much more positive light and, and more functional relationship yeah, in that way. And, and I will say, I knew what I was doing wasn't healthy. And I, I think most women... Mm who are, are dealing with eating disorders. And of course, men can have eating disorders too. So mo most people who are dealing with eating disorders, they're able to logic brain say, this is not healthy. I know this isn't good. Right. But the eating disorder is not something that exists in your logic brain. It's something that exists in your emotional brain. And those are two completely different parts of your neuroanatomy. And it's actually 100% possible for you to have 
your logic thought and your emotional thought happening simultaneously. They can exist all in the same moment. And so I could sit there going, this isn't healthy. This isn't right. I know I'm not supposed to do this. I know I should eat more and also push the plate away or also decide that I'm full or also look at myself and say, "Uh uh-uh, it's not enough. It's not far enough. Um, So I, I, I think that is a common misconception with people with eating disorders that like they just don't they just don't know that they're not healthy. They think that they're doing the right thing. No, no, mm. I knew I was not mm-hmm. doing the right thing. But yeah. the, the disease doesn't care about that. The disease is something beyond that. And, um, and, and, and that's where getting appropriate help and support is so meaningful to have somebody who can say, yes, you have an emotion that you're feeling right now. What are other ways that you can handle that emotion that doesn't have to cause physical harm? I want to share with the listeners, because I know some of them are mm. my students, are fellow intern, or I should say fellow dietitians, and also interns who are on their way to becoming dietitians, that this is, this is really where you need to pay attention when it comes to speci- specifically with eating disorders or disordered eating. And then also you'll sometimes see um, simultaneously, simultaneous specialties in certain uh, practices where they'll also work with sports dietetics as well, sports nutrition, because there are certain things about needs for fueling, like Catherine had mentioned in the beginning about, you know, being an athlete and however you deem that, that could potentially lead to disordered eating patterns. But also the fact that eating disorders are technically what's called a DSM uh, diagnosis that comes from the mental health area and not necessarily a clinical diagnosis like, oh, my body doesn't produce enough insulin and therefore I need to follow a certain diet. So just as an FYI to anyone out there who is interested in eating disorders, working with people with eating disorders, have have right now disordered eating issues, try to find someone who understands that behavioral aspect because not all dietitians are trained on how to counsel. We're trained on calculations and things along um, the more clinical routes of how do I fix how your body should biochemically be doing something and helping you manage a condition. And so, in, and so in finding somebody who does specialize in that or can refer you to a specialist, I think is very helpful because I know even for me as a dietitian, there, there are so many uh, behind the scenes factors that I have to consider with people with whom I work that I don't feel necessarily qualified sometimes to keep digging deep like that. Or I haven't found that I am specialized enough in counseling behaviors because that's not what I was trained on. Much like how I joke, you know, with doctors, they spend 15 minutes with you, diagnose you with whatever your disease is, hand you a piece of paper that says, don't eat this stuff. And they walk away. And I'm like, thank you. I'll take it from here. Then as a dietitian, I have to also make sure that I know what my scope entails. And that if I am starting to see certain patterns being discussed in my counseling sessions, I have to, I have to be able to address that and say, it seems like maybe I should refer you out, or it seems like maybe this is a little bit more than what I can handle. So I'd like to advocate also for you know, the patients as well to make sure that they're not just being thrown to whoever works in their network. Healing eating disorders was just about, hey, go ahead, eat 2,500 calories a day, go, you'll be fixed. Mm -hmm. Then it it wouldn't be such a challenging thing to recover from. It's not just about eating the adequate calories. It's all of the things that are underneath why it's a struggle to eat those adequate calories. So, so thanks for, for pulling in that, that piece of it too. 
Absolutely. And that also gives, gives um, advocacy or empowerment to anybody who is interested in, in moving in that direction and specializing in that, that look, look outside of what you're uh, learning in your academic pursuits, look for other areas of how to do workshops and training and yeah. so on. Okay. So Catherine, along those same lines, or maybe if you want to get us off into a different direction, tell us a little bit then uh, of yeah. the career development. Like how did you end up moving in the direction of what you're doing now? Cause it sounds very interesting what you're doing. And I also, I'm, I was looking up some information about pelvic floor exercises and I thought, well, everybody has a pelvis. Is it just for women? Is it for men? So tell us a little bit about. Yeah. So I'm currently um, a doctor of physical therapy. I specialize in pelvic floor rehabilitation, Um, kind of my journey to get there. So after I graduated from NYU, I worked and didn't work uh, in musical theater for about 10 years and to pay the bills because everybody has to have a job to pay the bills when you're a performer. Um, I was teaching Mm -hmm. yoga on the side. Um, Yoga actually was a huge part of my recovery from my eating disorder um, and was really a, a way that I could connect to my body and to movement in a way that had nothing to do with body image and in a way that was not visual and in a way that was, um, appreciative of what I was doing and what my body was and what my body um, was capable of instead of um, punishing, which is how exercise had been previously. Right. So yoga was a huge important part of that uh, um, healing for me. And that is a big part of what inspired me to become a yoga teacher to, to kind of help others in journeys like mine. Um, so I'm, I'm working or auditioning kind of in the daytime and then I'm teaching yoga in the evening and I'm hitting this point in my life, sort of mid later twenties where I'm saying, wow, I'm working so hard to be a performer and it's just not paying off the way that I want it to. Um, and then on the other hand, I'm teaching yoga and that's that's challenging work too it's it's demanding in other ways but i'm getting this incredible feedback from it i'm having students who leave my class and they're saying oh my gosh the thing you said really resonated with me or i've been taking your class for you know years now and it's changed me or helped me in such and such a way and i'm like wow that's 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 different that's special that feels really good Mm. um and as i'm you know getting a little bit older, starting to say, wow, I hear my friends have this thing called a 401k. That sounds interesting. (laughs) And they have health insurance and they have stability. Like they know what their job is going to be a year from now and two years from now. And huh, I, I, I wonder if I could take the positives of what I'm feeling as a yoga teacher and incorporate some stability into that. So for me, obviously I had my parents as models of, of physical therapists. And I'd always seen that for them, um, their careers were something that were really rewarding. They weren't becoming millionaires off of it. That's for sure. But we had what we wanted. We had what we needed. We were well provided for. Um, and it was a very rewarding job for them emotionally and personally. So I said, okay, Hmm. what would the steps be to go back to school and and become a PT? 
Well, the first steps were doing all of the math and science that I didn't do as a, a theater major in NYU. Um, and I kind of started that from like, all right, I will take one, I'll take bio 101. And if I'm still interested, I'll take bio 202. And if that's still interesting, I'll take anatomy 101. And I kind of took it just one class at a time. And it, it kept being interesting. And it kept being something that my brain really liked. And it kept being the, the right answer. So um, a year with summers on both ends later, I had got all my prerequisites uh, under the way. And I, I applied to PT school and was accepted. Um, going into PT school, I, I kind of had an understanding that I would specialize in something because I could see again from my parents' careers and just from where healthcare was going in general, that you have more opportunities if you can be a little bit specialized. Um, I thought that specialty would be with, with dancers. That just made sense. Right. Uh, but Right. From kind of have, having some experiences in school, I thought, mm, that's not actually where I want to go. Um, so we got one day in school of all things women's health. So that was pregnancy, postnatal, um, menopause, issues of pain. Um, we had an additional day about cancer, but one day for all things women's health. <laughs> and I said, one day that's all women do deserve is just one day Catherine (laughs) that's all we get one day that's it okay that seems wildly like not enough um but I had an amazing professor (laughs) who was was really passionate about what she was teaching and you know it wasn't her fault that the curriculum only allowed her to have one day uh so I said okay how, how do I learn more mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. this? What, what's the next steps? So while I was in PT school, I did the, the intro level coursework to understand pelvic floor physical therapy, which is a four day, 30 hour course. Um, and it was there that I really figured out, okay, wow, this is what I want to do. Pelvic health is, is what I want to do. Um, and so I, I graduated with my uh, certificate to just begin to do public health work and have continued to, um, to grow and educate myself in that realm. Um, and now I work at a physical therapy clinic where 90% of my day is, is mostly spent treating um, the pelvic floor and the, the conditions related to our mm. pelvic floor. Uh, yeah. And I, I just, I love it. it it's really feels like the, the right fit. And I think that's something to keep an eye out for, too, whenever we're venturing into our (laughs) career, building our personal and professional development and something. Like you said, you got the feedback from the students first, which made you feel like, oh, I'm on the right track with this thing. I'm really good at what I'm doing. And then by easing into those classes, taking one one class at a time. And I'm like you, I had a BA in communication and my goal was to have an MS in nutrition. And I was like, uh, you might as well just be teaching me a completely different language because I have no idea what's going on. 
<laughs> but now, you know, you, we both, you and I both, I think, get to marry those those uh, academic skills and the new soft skills and the knowledge that we've achieved over those those years and put them together. And now we get to have a final product that is really applicable to so many different things. And now you're also getting validated sure. in this field as well, which I think is fantastic. <laughs> will you will you explain a little bit then yes. about what exactly is a pelvic floor? <laughs> like, is it tile, ceramic, yeah. linoleum? Awesome like, what are we so- looking at here? You are exactly correct. Uh, Everyone has a pelvis and everybody has a pelvic floor, men, women, children, doesn't matter how old, doesn't matter how young you have a pelvic floor. So if you think about your pelvis, which if you put your hands on your hips, those hip bones, right, are are your pelvic bones, Um, the bone Mm -hmm. in the front, like right underneath your bladder is your pubic bone. And then the bone in the back, Um, where your spine kind of inserts down is your sacrum. So all of those bones connect together Mm -hmm. and make this ring that we refer to as a whole as the pelvis. So if you imagine your pelvis like a cereal bowl, the bones are like the sides of your cereal bowl. And then the pelvic floor is the bottom of your cereal bowl. It's a network of several different muscles that run front to back and side to side at that bottom of our pelvis. If you didn't have a pelvic floor, we would pick up that that bony connection and it would be like having a cereal bowl with no bottom. All your cereal would fall out the bottom. So our pelvic floor, one of its major functions is literally that support, keeping your insides on your insides. So very specifically making sure that your bladder, your rectum, your uterus, if you have one, is supported and and contained on your inside. Then we wanna think about the the functions of the bladder, the uterus and the rectum. The pelvic floor also gets, gets tied up in that. So the pelvic floor muscles are also sphincteric. So they close off around the rectal and urethral mm-hmm. and vaginal openings. When they contract, they help to keep your pee and your poop inside. When they relax, they allow you to let things out appropriately. So there's a sphincteric function where it helps to maintain our, our continence. Um, and then our pelvic floor also has a sexual function. These muscles are very important in achieving good arousal. So they bring blood flow to the clitoris or to the penis, allow for arousal to happen. Um, and then they also contract rhythmically with orgasm in order for us to experience that joy and pleasure. And then for women, we also need these muscles to be able to relax and stretch in order to tolerate penetrative intercourse if that's something that you want to do. So support, sphincteric function, and sexual Mm -hmm. function are the main um, uh, functions of our pelvic floor muscles. And so I deal with conditions related to each of those all day. So I say, you know, I love my job because I get to talk about pee, poop, and sex all day long. And for me, that lights me up. I love that. My job is two out of three of those. I talk about pee and poop for Um, sure. You, you get the, bon- you get the I, bonus you know, I conversation. I do understand that not everyone gets as jazzed up about those conversations as I do, but that's why we, we have all kinds of PTs in the world. Yeah. I want to say something. So anatomically, what I was thinking was the pelvic, what I was thinking was the pelvic floor. I was thinking were the bones. So if anybody's touching. Like, it's funny that I'm in my room closed <laughs> up because I'm quite literally like touching. Yeah. 
I was like, okay, right. Yeah. I and I mean, I had anatomy and physiology. I know what you're talking about, but I forgot about the muscle structure down there too. And obviously you'll probably get to this as well with like, you know, birthing, like men, you know, many births also might um, somehow yeah. play a take a toll on your pelvic floor too, I would assume, but also just as an FYI. So for people, yes. this is not going to be on the test, but for people out there, yes, your body comes <laughs> with many sphincters. Everybody always jokes about the anal one, yeah. but like we have an, a lower esophageal sphincter, which is if it's compromised, that's how yeah. people get barous esophagus or GERD, you know, um, gastroesophageal, like the, the burping and the um, acid reflux. And then down below, there are different points that your body op- contracts and expands, like Catherine was saying. So you got a little bit of an anatomy physiology uh information there for everybody a little educational lesson and then in going forward to how your clientele i guess what they're coming in for tell us i'm fat right now i'm fascinated so continue as much as you want to share with us on this um and keeping in mind too that the point of the podcast is not necessarily just to focus on food and what happens there but Mm -hmm. if there are certain concerns that we might want to keep in mind too of how our nutrition but also our health and wellness approaches with keeping our our own priorities in check how that oh may gosh, or may not yes. affect our pelvic floor. Yeah. Um, you know, so, keep that in yes, mind too when you're sharing. To yeah. Things. So I'll, I'll kind of start with where you started there, Dina, because I think most people think about their pelvic floors in relationship to pregnancy and birth. That's if we've heard about pelvic floors, that's probably the only context that we've heard of it in. Right. So during the course of pregnancy, the uterus grows and expands and the pelvic floor muscles that are holding your uterus up take quite a challenge, right? As the uterus grows, as baby grows, as mom's weight or or parents, excuse me, weight increases, that's going to Mm -hmm. change the way that our pelvic floor has to work. Also, the pelvis will expand over the course of pregnancy. So the muscles that are connecting onto the pelvis um, move into a more lengthened position. So even if a person does not have a vaginal delivery, Mm -hmm. Just the course of pregnancy puts a tremendous burden and strain on the pelvic floor muscles because they're working to hold up more weight in a compromised position. They're not at their ideal length tension relationship within the pelvis. If vaginal delivery does happen, as you've kind of alluded to, that's going to put an additional toll on the pelvic floor Mm -hmm. muscles. They're going to stretch way more than they ever have to allow for baby to pass down through the the birth canal and out of mom. That can sometimes mean that Mm -hmm. there, um, it it, it could be simply a stretch injury. Sometimes people will have tearing uh, during vaginal delivery or an episiotomy. So that can definitely affect their function afterwards. So think of it like if you went out and played soccer and slid and tore your hamstring, most doctors would say, hey, go to PT. You got to work mm. on that and get those muscles to fire back up again. But uh, every single day, people deliver mm. babies vaginally. They have small or large tears uh, to their pelvic floor muscles. And not very often do doctors say, hey, you should go to PT and get that rehabbed. But that's what I can do. That's where right. public health physical therapists can come in and teach those muscles to contract again. Um, But also, you know, if you're having a muscle tear, there's can also become issues uh, with the length or the flexibility. Um, When a muscle is torn and then is trying to heal, 
the fibers don't necessarily lay down as nice and orderly as they did originally. So we can have issues of scar tissue um, that can make any of those functions of our pelvic floor a little bit more difficult. So if you've had a very severe tear, um, that can actually go as far back as the anal sphincter. So that can cause issues with defecation. Um, right. We hear very frequently after vaginal delivery that there can be pain with intercourse. And that's not just due to lubrication that's challenged mm. um, if a person is breastfeeding, but if the tissue has been torn and is now um, in a place where it's still healing, that can leave a scar that can make penetrative intercourse maybe not as comfortable as it once was. So I deal with those kinds of issues postpartum. Frequently, we'll also hear postpartum just either from simply the act of pregnancy and carrying a baby or from delivery that can affect our continence. We hear about people who leak a little pee when they cough or sneeze or jump or leak a little right. poop when they cough or sneeze or jump or can't control their gas after having kids. And you know, television wants you to see, mm -hmm. I think it's like Brooke Burks who now advertises for poise mm -hmm. that like, oh, you can just wear a pad for the rest of your life. And it's quote right. unquote normal to pee a little bit after you've had kids. No, audience, no, it is not normal to pee after you have kids. And in fact, it's common. Yes, it happens to a lot of us and you shouldn't feel shame if that's happening to you. But common does not mean normal. Right. And there is something right. that you can do about it. And there no, are no. ways to rehab um, those issues postpartum. And you deserve to have yourself rehabbed uh, postpartum. <laughs> oh, my gosh. This is fascinating. I, I think you're so right. People, you know, with all due respect to a lot of people who I've come across, they're always sometimes looking for the yeah. quick fix of things. But it's like, no, no, no. If you put some effort and energy into something, you might you might be able to reverse or heal mm -hmm. or slow the progression of things getting worse if you do the quote unquote do the work. And so whether it's poise uh, undergarments or it's, you know, some sort of pill that you're taking or being on some pharmaceuticals that, you know, might be necessary at the time. In the meantime, look into therapy or whether that's eating therapy or physical therapy or whatever. Uh, because again, this is something that I think you, you as the patient or the, the human on the other end there, you're starting to take control of your own life and you're starting to be a little bit more aware with things <laughs> i've suffered from a bazillion injuries i keep saying oh. i um i act half my age but i feel twice it and i do and i went to my friend stephanie shane who was actually my episode number one she was my kickoff episode on this podcast who's also a, a physical a doctor of physical therapy and she helped me with some of these physical therapy movements that i still do because the dumbest things like i like you said i sneeze or i mm. move clothes in the closet and I pull a back muscle, but by learning how to adjust and strengthen certain parts of my body and developing my, you know, quote unquote core in that case, yeah. in, in the pelvic floor, I guess that would be the core of what we're talking about there, that it's really made my injuries so much 
uh, less prominent. I've also learned how to adapt certain movements in that as well to not have to re-injure myself. So I, I tend to say like, I can really feel my body compensating or overcompensating for parts that are weaker. And I'm like, Oh, I gotta go adjust that part. And it's, it's made me so much more mindful of everything. So I really appreciate you walking through that whole process and explaining the human body to us as well. So I want to find out from you, what is, what is it that you're working on now for yourself to grow your own business pursuits or, or within your you know career there? And then maybe sure. what even the future entails just to kind of add on to my practice and things that I see that yes, even though postpartum and pregnancy conditions are sort of how people most understand or most think about pelvic floor uh, PT, it's, it's really not the only, and I think the the greatest misconception, if there is one about my job, it is that it is just doing Kegels. And there are a lot of things that Kegels can help with. But there's a lot of things (laughs) that Kegels are the absolute wrong answer for. So uh, Kegels are strengthening or tightening the muscles of the pelvic floor, right? And just like any other muscle anywhere else in your body, your pelvic floor muscles, yes, need to be strong. They need to support. They need to contract. But they also need to be able to relax and lengthen appropriately. So I also will say, you know, the other 50% of my practice Mm. are patients who have difficulty with relaxing or lengthening their pelvic floors. And that especially ties into um, things that have to do with digestion and food things. So I see a lot of people, um, maybe they have IBS, maybe they have GERD, maybe they have just this unspecified abdominal pain, maybe they have constipation, um, their, their doctors don't know why. And it can be in some circumstances because the muscles of the pelvic floor cannot open, relax, and lengthen. So you can have the best diet in the world. You can have amazing digestion. Your food is moving down through your gut perfectly and appropriately. But if the door is slammed shut at the bottom, you're not going to be able to let things go. Um, also, then that relates to sexual function too. So I see people all the time, they've never had children, but they can have a lot of pain with any kind of penetration, using a tampon, seeing a gyno, sexual function, because these muscles aren't able to relax and lengthen and let go. So for them, the, again, the, the, the treatment is not Kegels. It does not tighten everything up. It's about teaching them to relax and open and lengthen and let go. So just kind of putting out that misconception there too, because I, again, I, I think that's the, the myth out there that people think, oh yeah, pelvic floor, I'm just going to squeeze mm-hmm. everything for days. Uh-uh, that's not necessarily the answer. <laughs> oh my gosh. Again, super fascinating with all this. I really, I, you know, as you're saying this too, I'm thinking, <laughs> sure. uh, might I need to like make an appointment with you at some point? Because I, I'm noticing some things as, again, as I age as well, you know, certain things that I'm like, oh, it's possible that I might need to, uh, you know, I'm not ashamed to say things like some things are, I'm in menopause and some things are drying up a little quickly and there's certain things that I'm experiencing right now too. So this is, this is yeah. truly fascinating. I'm so glad that so many put you in touch with me. Um, so, yeah. So continue, continue with whatever else you want to share with us because I want, I want oh, to know a little bit you. more about you. I also, obviously I want to respect your time, but I want to, I want to find out from you too. Like if you mm-hmm. have any, uh, you know, anything you want to share with us as far as resources and things that you, you 
keep that in mind as well. If you want to, um, you know, deliver that message and tell us maybe what's the first step that we should be looking out for if we are undergoing pain, suffering, et cetera, because literally right now you just taught me like the neck bone is related to the butt bone. Like I know everything is now all interrelated. You're a whole entire body. (laughs) Western medicine would love us to just be pieces and parts. And you know, the the doctor wants Mm -hmm. to chop us up into just one thing and, that's a whole other conversation about why our American uh, medical system makes us do that. Um, But yeah, it's almost like from head to toe, you're connected and those things relate to each other. Uh, Yeah. So kind of ideas that you might need to go see a pelvic floor physical therapist, obviously if you've had a child or carried a child, it's another one. um, People who have, miscarried and lost a child, their pelvic floor was still Mm. affected by that event. And those people are never encouraged to go to physical therapy. So that can be a healing event as well. Um, Mm. If you have dysfunction with bladder, either issues of leakage, incontinence, or issues of urine retention, hesitancy peeing, feeling like you have to pee all the time. If the joke is always like, oh, we can't leave yet because Dina's got to go pee first, you may benefit from pelvic floor PT. Um, right. Issues of digestion, constipation, bloating, um, like I said, that can be helpful. And then any sexual dysfunction, um, difficulty or pain with intercourse, again, it doesn't matter what age you are. I think people, if they have heard about pain with sex, they think, oh, maybe that's just after you had a baby or maybe as you're going through menopause, it's just a hormonal thing. I see mm-hmm. women and men in their 20s that are having discomfort with, in, with intercourse. So it's not just um, an old person's thing. Um, and then also just general um, low back pain can actually be um, associated with, with uh, pelvic floor dysfunction. Actually, there's some study out there, oh. I'm not going to give you the exact numbers on it, but it basically showed that pelvic floor dysfunction is more associated with low back pain than it is with urinary incontinence. What? So much for us to take in. So Catherine, do you want to share with us then anything, future stuff that you're working on? I am Mm -hmm. also trying to get better at self-promotion. It is something I am not great at. (laughs) I'm definitely more of a creature of like, let me just do my thing over here and like not, not talk about it and not tell people that I'm doing it. And uh, my, my goal for 2021 is to get a little better at self-promotion. I have recently kind of changed my Instagram over to being more professional oriented. And I'm trying, my, my goal now is to start to put some content up there to help mm-hmm. to educate people about the pelvic floor and, and all rehab that can happen there. So if you want to check out my Instagram, it's uh, Catherine Ahuja underscore DPT. Yes. Um, in general health, wellness, or yoga coaching, um, you can check out my website. That's kind of my, my side hustle, if you will, is that I also do um, uh, personalized yoga sessions, health coaching, and, and things like that as well. So I still have my yoga hat uh, that, that I like to don every now and again. I think, you know, 
Going back to what you were saying before, too, just about the specialties discussion, that we can be a variety of different things. Like I could be a realtor and I can also be a yoga instructor. I could be um, a dietitian and I can also be a business coach. Like there's different things that we can do. And if you have enjoyment in it, everything can be in that in that um, realm for people. So it doesn't always have to be just one thing that you switch gears and just focus on that thing and have that be it. If anything that I've said resonates in your heart says, Oh, I, I don't know. Like maybe that's me. Maybe that's my patient. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe that's my, my sister, my brother. Um, you deserve care and there's no shame about seeking out care. There's no shame about getting things Mm -hmm. addressed. Um, and I, you know, it seems like if you, if you're going to go to physical therapy for a sprained ankle, we have no issue talking about that and sharing about that with people in our lives. But if you're going to PT for a strained pelvic floor, for some reason, there's still a lot of shame and stigma um, and not mm-hmm. wanting to talk about that. And just from just knowing that if you can share your journey with others, you may be helping them as well. Um, and if you think that something is up, it probably is. And just encouraging you to continue to find a healthcare provider that will listen to your concerns um, and will help connect you to the person who will help you with those concerns. Because I will say many, many of my patients have gone to three, four, five, ten 10 doctors before they finally get a referral to me. Um, so if you feel like you're getting the wrong answer, keep searching because help is out there. And if you're feeling intuitively in your body, like this isn't right, you're probably on to something. I'm so in love with this message. I'm writing down two things. I think one day, one day I might have to just venture off into a whole other podcast oh, topic and yeah. discuss like a panel discussion about American healthcare systems. Because what you said there is true. Some people don't get listened to. Mm-hmm. Some people get treated like pieces and parts. Like I loved that quote. I just wrote it down pieces and parts. Mm-hmm. And the fact that okay, I'm not going to get political here, but the fact that we're all okay with shooting and swearing, Uh but heaven forbid someone breastfeeds in public, everybody goes nuts. So like, let's relax. It's the human body. You know, we're all, we're all carrying it around with us. (laughs) Like it is what it is. And, um, I'm really excited to see things like even feminine hygiene products on television. Now (laughs) when we're not using that blue water anymore to show people how it soaks up the the period blood, like you're allowed to talk about these things. In fact, I encourage it. And sex. Talk about pee and poop all the long day. Talk about it all the time. Let's (laughs) more talk. So I did forget about it because I just think about my food and nutrition stuff all the time. Yes, exactly. And this is the, this is the whole approach. This is the holistic whole approach of, of what we are really trying to get to. Cause as you said, and we were saying before, all things are connected in that. Um, Catherine, it has been a delight. I'm so, like I said, I'm so glad Sonia put us in touch with each other. I want to, ask a final question, which I know, you know, is coming about, uh, we are currently, I like to at least say this out loud because of different times of, uh, recording might not necessarily match up with when it's actually being published. So in case things are happening now that are not Mm -hmm. happening later, but we are currently in the uh, winter months. We are currently still in a flipping pandemic. We are currently recording this on a Saturday morning. So what is on your, uh, literal and figurative plates today? Uh, another theme of 2021 has been, um, doing less and pulling back a little bit. 
So uh, giving myself time for my own rest and recovery, because I think sometimes when, I, I don't want to generalize, but as a healthcare provider myself, I can forget to take care of myself. Um, so there will probably be mm -hmm. a nap somewhere in my day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I'm going to do some kind of physical movement. I haven't decided what that's going to be yet. Um, and then I'm going to, my sister-in-law Sonia is actually going to come over this evening for dinner. Uh, we're going to make some good food. I, I'm eyeing this like sausage and kale stew that I think I'm going to make. Um, yeah. So that's going to be my day, mm. a little rest, a little movement and a little family time is very well-rounded and you are completely right that we need to lead and live by example if we want to be of service to others my my mantra for 2021 i think which kind of relates to what you were saying too is work smarter not harder lighten the load a little bit i'm very fortunate that i just uh, signed on a bunch of uh, student volunteers who will be helping me lighten my load as well and yes. uh, get some things that I've been wanting to get uh -huh. done with done because I'm only one person but I have a lot of pursuits <laughs> it's it's nice when you're you're busy but you can there's only so much time in a day and it works the same for all of us so that is a wonderful note to leave on as well in the sense of taking care of yourself whether you're in the health and wellness field or not but also and even beyond that too what we've been talking about all day is you know be aware of your body pay attention to what you deserve in life and what your uh, exper experiences are with your healthcare professionals as well, making sure that you're getting what's best for you. So thank you, Catherine, so much for yeah, spending thanks, time with Dina. me. And I definitely look forward to catching up with you again soon. Great. Thank you so much for joining me this week on the Dish with Dina podcast. I am Dina D'Alessandro, registered dietitian, nutritionist, founder, and chief executive life changer at Dish with Dina. And I'm also your host. If you like what you heard, I would be so grateful if you could subscribe to this podcast, leave a review, and share this with others who you think might benefit from what we have to offer on these episodes. You can also join my mailing list at dishwithdina.com or email me at info at dishwithdina.com with questions, comments, feedback, and if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode because everybody eats and we all have a story to share. I hope you tune back in next week when we dish again.